0: This week on Grubstakers, we're talking about Larry Ellison, one of the 10 richest men in the world. Hear all about how he made his fortune selling a buggy database software that doesn't actually work, committing a little bit of mild accounting fraud, insider trading, and then screwing his employees and uh, people he had contractual arrangements with out of money they deserve. All that and more coming up on Grubstakers.
1: First they think you're crazy, then they fight you, and then all of a sudden you change the world.
2: Berlusconi
1: flatly denies that any mafia money helped him begin to start the fantasy.
2: I have, I have always had a thing for black people. I like black people. Tell you, know, these stories are funnier than, than the jokes you can tell.
0: I said, what the fuck is a brain scientist? I was like, that's not a real job. Tell me the truth. But anyway. They solved this problem. In five four three two one good night and good luck this is grubstakers the podcast about billionaires i'm joined here by my friends Yoki Polywolf. good morning i'm andy palmer
1: <laughs> steve giffers
0: and this week we're talking about larry ellison according to forbes the number seven richest man in the world worth about as of april 2019 66.8 billion dollars and uh, if you don't happen to know who Larry Ellison is, you're in for a bit of a treat. Because if I were to describe Larry Ellison, I would say John McAfee with 10% less cocaine. And that 10% is the key difference between being worth $60 billion and being a fugitive on the run for multiple homicides. This is on key. <laughs> um. Larry Ellison is a sociopath, a psychopath, a uh, compulsive liar. He told uh, one of the early programmers, he said, quote, we can't be successful unless we lie to customers, unquote. <laughs> and, uh, well, at least he's honest. Yeah. But he's like built this empire. Like how is he worth 66 billion? Well, it's the fact that the Oracle database technology – um, that uh, mainly these other programmers, partly him, but mainly these others, came up with in the late 70s, early 80s, has spread so far and wide that most every e commerce site today, such as, you know, Amazon, Expedia, and all these others, they use his database technologies. And that's how he's worth $66 uh, billion. And um, I guess what I would say is. Uh, the two main sources for this episode, uh, the two biographies about Larry Ellison, the one's called *The Difference Between God and Larry Ellison* by Mike Wilson, and the other one's called *Everyone Else Must Fail* by Karen Southwick, and they're they're both fine. I recommend them, but I cannot recommend the biography called *Soft War* by Matthew Simons uh, because the author literally destroyed evidence to protect Larry Ellison from an insider trading lawsuit. What? Yeah, he uh, a judge. It's, it's true. Sean gave him a one star review. Yeah, on <laughs> <laughs> a judge into uh, Larry Ellison did uh, insider trading. He pleaded guilt. I mean, he paid a fine, but he pleaded guilty to this back in uh, 2001. He did it. Um, and then in 2008, a judge ruled that uh, both he had destroyed email evidence uh, of him committing these acts and his biographer had destroyed taped interviews and other notes Wow, That would possibly implicate him in that act And I do just want to shout that guy out Because it really takes the obsequious Billionaire biography to another (laughs) level To actually commit obstruction Of justice (laughs) to protect your subject
1: um, He owns An island
0: Yes he does own The sixth largest island in Hawaii Called Lanai He bought it for about 300 million dollars In 2012 Um, What does Lanai mean do we know
1: it's a Hawaiian word. I don't know what it means. I think it means porch. At least that's how they use it in Florida.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. It means uh, quit claim deeds against natives. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I think it means something different than porch. That's uh, that's just how they use it in Florida. It's a like a covered porch.
1: Well, if you thought Necker Island was pretty <laughs> pretty crazy, sure. Um, this island is like what thirty times larger. So oh, really? That's huge.
0: That's nuts yeah Yeah, and basically like every business on the island except for like a gas station and one or two others either is owned by him or pays him rent yeah, and he's like i don't know he's he, he bought this and the other thing like i said he lies compulsively so he bought this island and he talks about turning it into a um 100 green renewable community and then he just hasn't done anything about <laughs> that <laughs> the most recent story i found is like in 2018 um Steve Jobs' doctor, of all people, who, first of all, apparently still has his medical license, <laughs> which was surprising for me to learn. But uh, Larry Ellison... And- it's just, his, his license is just a juicer. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's a Vitamix. Uh, <laughs> That's his- what he... He calls his Vitamix the pharmacist. <laughs> I need you to go over to the pharmacist for your chemo.
0: You go, you go to his office, and he has all the degrees on the wall. But under it, it all says like Juicero University. Yeah. <laughs> Here's uh, my PhD from Herbalife. <laughs> um, oh yeah, but so Steve Jobs is doctor in him. They've launched this project to. Uh, Do, like, sustainable farming in this island as of 2018 to make, you know, all natural ingredients and keep on the island. I mean, it all just sounds like a bunch of buzzword BS. And that's the other thing you have to remember with Larry Ellison. And we'll we'll get into some of this is um, he got rich by essentially selling a product that doesn't exist. Like they came up with this Oracle database and then he was selling it multiple years before it existed and then selling completely buggy, unworkable versions of it and lying about the features. So that's been his entire life is like getting himself in the press or in the door by just saying, hey, we're doing this thing when it's not actually happening. It
3: seems like we we just kind of skimmed over this, but it seems like he's preparing to flip that island. (laughs) That's the world we live in where people, billionaires can just flip Hawaiian islands for a profit. That's right.
0: But so I guess we can start from the beginning with Larry Ellison and get through how he uh, uh, built this database technology. Um, Larry Ellison was born in uh, 1944 to an unwed mother in, in New York. Um, he actually uh, almost died of pneumonia in uh, nine months old, 1944. Um, so I think we can chalk this one up to another failure of New Deal liberalism. <laughs> yeah, so close. Yeah, the, the problem with social democratic reformism is you take half measures that uh, leave Larry Ellison and Mitch McConnell alive. If you don't like billionaires, take it up with God. (laughs) And uh, so his mother is a single mother unwed, uh, so she has to give him up for adoption. 19 years old. Yeah, she's 19 years old, and so she has to give him up for adoption, and she sends him to live with uh, her rather well-to-do sister in uh, Chicago. So uh, Larry Ellison goes over to Chicago... Um, His father's, his adopted father is, you know, a Russian Jew who who fled Russia. I like that he started Uh, life as hot gossip. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so, and again... Larry Ellison is a compulsive liar, so I have no idea how true this is. Uh, Larry Ellison, according to the book God and Larry Ellison, uh, as a young man, Larry Ellison said his father put together enough money to make down payments on some apartment buildings, then leverage those properties to buy more. Uh, he says his adoptive father was a millionaire. Um, according to Larry, his tenants stopped paying rent during the Depression, and he lost most everything. Hmm. So... Uh, I have no idea if any of that is true, but um, it is relevant to know that on the one hand, he says his father was a uh, millionaire landlord, and on the other hand, he says he grew up in the ghetto in South Side of Chicago. (laughs) Like, Larry Ellison gives all these quotes about, like, uh, he told the Wall Street Journal, I didn't know how bad the neighborhood was until uh, I left. Uh, he described the neighborhood as notoriously rough and tough. Uh, he says he grew up in a poor tenant building. Uh, we didn't have any money.
1: You never, you never know when vacancy rates on your father's building will fall <laughs> below 70%. And, you're, and then you have to move into your other house. It was rough out there.
0: He can relate to people the in south. The, south, the south side of Chicago today <laughs> worrying about uh, whether or not their parents' tenants or will <laughs> uh, pay the rent <laughs> next month. Yeah, all of a sudden,
1: a bunch of people who need shelter can't have it, and you know, you, all of
0: your income is gone. Um, but, and then just one from this Mike Wilson book. The truth was Larry Ellison did not grow up in a tenement. His family was not poor, and his neighborhood was not rough. Uh, he originally was on the north side of Chicago. They moved to the south side, but it, specifically a neighborhood called South Shore, uh, yeah. which was one of the south side's most desirable neighborhoods, according from the book. By the late 1950s, the neighborhood was not just stable but strong. People worked as college professors, and shoe store owners, and lawyers, they had and a, so they had on. a Wendy's <laughs>
2: <laughs> most desirable? They just saying white. What is that? What do you think that means?
0: Yeah, basically. Yeah, I mean, it was Italian, so not quite, but. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no I mean it, it went through cycles it was like the r-
1: most desirable south
0: Chicago <laughs> right grid. right it's got an olive
2: garden yeah
0: <laughs> it was like a wasp neighborhood then a Italian a chain store that sells pasta <laughs> it was like a wasp neighborhood then an Italian Irish then a Jewish neighborhood and buzz, the, buzz. yeah um so wouldn't
3: you want to grow olives in an orchard yeah why
1: instead of oh. a garden. instead
3: of
2: a garden. I think it's more trees. it's more that um I, I think the olive garden is more that it's like a family so yeah. it's, like it's a small a, operation. Yeah, right. They
1: know they olives. Right.
2: So it's less that I mean for maximum olive efficiency, yes, but for a family operation, you would only you would only be able to afford a garden.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a family that can't afford to salt the water when they make pasta. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Free breadsticks though.
0: But so Ellison, he graduates from uh, South Shore High School in 1962. He uh, enrolls in the University of Illinois. Um, he essentially, he goes there. He takes like physics classes. He starts to learn about programming there at University of Illinois, but his adoptive mother dies cancer of cancer his sophomore year. So he drops out. Uh, he later enrolls briefly at University of Chicago, drops out. And so his his adopted. So he's a a dropout, Kanye West, Bill Gates style? Exactly. Wow. Last dropout. Larry Ellison.
2: Mm -hmm. That's right.
0: Uh, Kanye West also grew up in the rough neighborhood Larry Ellison grew up in. (laughs) He worked at the Olive Garden. Uh, Uh,
1: The Wi Fi was spotty. It's rough.
0: But so um, Larry Ellison, he, uh, his father is like, he describes his father as like kind of a conformist, go with the flow, you know, what the government says is right kind of guy. So his adoptive father and him have like conflicts, you know, they don't get along. Um, Larry Ellison's rebellious against authority figures and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, basically, his mother has died. So he's living with his adoptive father. But in 1966, he gets sick of it. So he drives to Berkeley, California, in 1966. And
3: essentially, I like how people who have problems with authority tend to fall into two categories. There's either like you have a problem with authority, so you try to like work at a grassroots level, make things better for people, mm-hmm. or you just become like a huge billionaire <laughs> asshole <laughs> and become the authority.
0: Yes. He has problems with authority, so that's why he fires people before their stock options vest. <laughs> he wants to teach other people to have problems with authority. <laughs> but essentially, so he goes out to California. He meets his first wife here. Apparently, like, in the 60s, he got a nose job. Uh, I, I don't really know why, but... He deviated septum, or like, what, what do you think these I don't are? know. Maybe he's vain. Maybe he's crazy. I'm mean, his face now. It doesn't
2: look that great. <laughs>
0: It was a uh, 10% less Coke than John McAfee is still an inhuman <laughs> yes. amount of cocaine. I mean, so thing. he blew his nose
3: out. A nose job in the sixties is like, it's more of a practice nose job. <laughs>
0: like they're still figuring it out. Mm-hmm. John Thackeray taking skin from your arm. I'm watching <laughs> the Nick. I know. Uh, but so, essentially, uh, they live in Oakland, California. He has, like, expensive tastes. His wife gets mad at him because he buys, like, a sailboat or some shit, even though he's, like, a college dropout. But he's, like, he's essentially working as a contract uh, computer programmer, you know, late 60s, early 70s. Uh, he's Like I said, he took some of these classes at um, as part of his physics degree or that he didn't finish. Um, but he also is mostly self-taught on this. Loser. <laughs> yeah andy is much cooler than the guy worth 66 billion dollars because andy finished his physics degree Mm -hmm. but so in the early 70s he gets a job at amdahl corporation which was uh run by a guy named gene amdahl who uh helped develop the mainframe computer at ibm Uh, This is from the book Everyone Else Must Fail. Amdahl's uh, idea was to uh, outdo the reigning mainframe computer maker with cheaper machines that could run the same software. So essentially... I just like to pitch in and say I also pay my prostitutes. (laughs) (laughs) Sex workers, please. Come on, Eddie.
2: Be respectful here.
0: Did we mention that at the top, that on multiple sex worker forums, uh, Larry Ellison has been accused of skipping out on the bill? (laughs) Uh no but now we are. Yeah. Well now they know. Sorry for not putting the good stuff first, people. We're still learning how to do this podcast. Is he still married? Uh no. no. Oh, okay. He has four divorces under oh, his nice. belt. Congrats. A hat trick wasn't enough. <laughs> <laughs> the golden sombrero of divorces. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so essentially, um, he's working at this early tech company and, you know, from this guy, he learns a lot of kind of tech entrepreneur stuff that inspires him. He, uh, this company has to go into business, uh, with, uh, uh Fujitsu, is that how it's called? I don't know. Yeah, Japanese right. company. Hell yeah. Right. Uh, so because they need the startup capital, they have to go into business with the Japanese company. So Larry Ellison visits Kyoto on a business trip for this company. Kyoto. Kyoto. And since then he has been inspired. <laughs> By the Japanese and their practice of not paying sex workers (laughs) (laughs) throughout the Korean Peninsula. Um, But yeah, so he he gets this lifelong fascination with Japan. And as we mentioned, he has, you know, these Japanese gardens and all this other Japanese management philosophy kind of stuff that you'll see as a trend Mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but the important thing here is he leaves this company in the early seventies. He bounces around a couple different other companies, but what really happens is he gets a job at a company called Ampex, A-M-P-E-X, which was working on storage of audio and video data. His boss there is a guy named Bob Miner, um, and Bob Miner and him work on a project for the central intelligence agency. Bob Miner majored in Robert. (laughs) Um, but so they get this uh, project working for the central intelligence agency. And, um, importantly enough, this is called the terabyte memory project. Uh, the central intelligence agency, uh, needed to keep track of all the wars they were starting around this period. <laughs> <laughs> and to do so, you need it. You couldn't rely on 500 gigabytes no, to get the job no, done. Of course not. So they needed a terabyte. And again, this is the early seventies. So a terabyte of data is a big deal in that time. Um, and so, essentially, him and Bob Miner and other people at Ampex get this contract for the CIA, and they build this, you know, terabyte uh, memory device to, uh, to store the thing. And um, Larry, Ellison, Larry Ellison leaves Ampex, but the contact there is very important because we mentioned this guy, his boss, Bob Miner. He meets another programmer named Ed Oates. And so Larry Ellison goes on to another company called Omex, Ampex, Omex. And Omex puts out a request for bids on software to manage its latest storage device. So Larry Ellison contacts his two old coworkers and says, hey, we should form a company and put a bid on this. And they do. And they put a bid of about $400,000, you know, they'll get this done for $400,000. So essentially, he starts a new company while still working for Omex. And they deliver a product to Omex while he's still working there to the point where, like, they even set up offices, I believe, in the same building as Omex. <laughs> this is, like, 1977. So he'll go to his job at Omex and then just, like, go downstairs to his job at the company he just founded. <laughs> um, and I believe they had about, according to different sources, they had about 2000 bucks in startup capital. Um, I think 1200 of it was Larry Ellison's. And he's actually making decent money at a, as a computer programmer at this point.
2: I won't, I won't do it. <laughs> Student, you, get the, you got the. I want to do it. I'm on
1: strike.
0: Larry Ellison is um, making decent money as a computer programmer. God, Stevens
3: on strike. Uh, we we, uh, we no, have that scab well, no, on speed No more dial. inflation estimates. <laughs> Let's call in Alex Patak. He's our <laughs>
0: scab. Uh, Alex have- Patag is going to cross the inflation lookup picket line. <laughs> Um, but so fucking he, he gets this uh, contract and they're working on it and this is 1977. They found this company, but the important thing that happens around here and they, you know, the nice thing about essentially programming software, there's not that much heavy capital intensive startup requirements. So they can put, you know, 2000 and they're all working as software. Any coal miner can do it. (laughs) (laughs) They're all working as a, a software programmer. So they have a bit of capital lying around. But what really changes everything is Larry Ellison uh, reads a published paper from an IBM researcher called Ted Cod. It was published in 1976. And this research paper is about how to design a relational database. And hopefully I can explain this because I barely understand it myself. But from what I understand, essentially up until this point, uh, computer databases were like very linear where like you couldn't look up an element that was all the way at the bottom of the database, you had to like just go down in order. Oh, yeah, to look up everything before it first. Uh, right. So, a relational database, and this is the from the paper from IBM researcher Ted Codd, uh, was essentially just um, you could use SQL structured query language uh, that would enable you to look up anything within a database and not have to go from the uh, top down. And that's yeah. relational databases.
1: Yeah, and nowadays they have really you know, sophisticated ones where you can have a lot of different tables of data that relate to each other. <laughs> relational. <laughs> SQL databases were... Such as um, MySQL yeah. or um, Ac- Microsoft Access. MySQL...
3: Which is my jam. SQL oh. was actually uh, very pivotal in, and this is true, uh, creating message boards mm. <laughs> culture. So... Uh, uh, Go on. Every time uh, you've been... Uh, you, you, None of us would have been able to be called a shit heel on the regular online uh, as teenagers were not for the invention of these relational databases.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Larry Ellison wouldn't be able to find sex workers and then not pay them the money that he made with SQL <laughs> well, the, the, if right, SQL wasn't invented. The yeah.
1: relational database um, developers were like, Forty years from now, I want kids to gravitate towards fascism <laughs> <laughs> and get out, Actually, use this language to get out in the streets and you know
3: show, share their views. And that's how we got Sean McCarthy.
0: Mm-hmm. They were like, "Could we remo- remove the usernames <laughs> from this language and make it anonymous and see <laughs> what happens?"
3: I will say, Sean, uh, you, I don't know if you've got much of a career
0: as a programmer, so mm-hmm. I'm glad to have you have your fallback as a journalist. <laughs> Um, but so they look at this relational database thing, and it is kind of similar story to Microsoft and Apple where IBM or a researcher for IBM invents this technology, but IBM doesn't take advantage. And the actual story of why IBM doesn't take advantage is because they actually want it to ship a decent project, (laughs) which is like a weird life lesson from capitalism. But basically what happens is, uh, we mentioned they start this company in 1977, um, uh, Larry Ellison, and it's the four-man team, Larry Ellison, Bob Miner, Ed Oates, and then they hire this programmer, Bruce Scott. The program is primarily written by Bob Miner and Bruce Scott, Uh, Larry Ellison is out there selling it and pitching it to people. But the important thing is it takes them two years, so they're finished with the thing in 1979. But their thing is a completely buggy, unworkable piece of shit that's even, I think, one of the early founders nicknamed it the Roach Motel for Data (laughs) because you enter your data in and it just disappears. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. And so it's like a weird thing where the IBM philosophy, they launched their relational database 1982, So, you know, um, Larry Ellison beats them to market by like three years, but IBM was like, hey, we don't want to sell this until we're confident in our product, let's sell people a good product, whereas Larry Ellison was like, let's just sell people a buggy piece of shit and then we'll have enough market share and it will be too expensive for people to switch over, because apparently it's like very cost intensive for a business to switch its database software. But it's an interesting story where essentially, like I said, during this period, Larry Ellison is selling a product that doesn't exist. And their first customer is the Central Intelligence Agency. So we mentioned, you know, the CIA, they need this uh, relational database uh, so that they can look up members of the Black Panther Party (laughs) and coordinate with Chicago police to have them murdered.
2: Um, So essentially, Larry Ellison's connected to most of the CIA's major
3: crimes during mm. this time period. That explains, Mm. you know, with the uh, things going wrong in the database, how they
0: just lost all of that cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the database worked fine. The CIA just pretended. (laughs) When it came time for congressional testimony, Mm -hmm. they're like, yeah, the database, it's a black box. (laughs) (laughs) They wanted to
1: make like monday.com, but for witness intimidation.
0: We had all that information on Guatemala and El Salvador. It was all in the (laughs) database. We typed it all up, and I don't know what happened. (laughs) Next thing you know, there's a
3: crack epidemic. (laughs) Computers, man.
0: I like the idea of them using the relational database to keep an eye on cocaine prices so that they can <laughs> undercut their competitors, <laughs> which was like not the cocaine prices thing, but the prices was an early use of relational databases because you can keep track of prices much more efficiently if you have a relational and not a top-down database. Yeah. So how was his
2: uh, product <laughs> shittier than the competitors?
0: Well, it was just totally buggy and unworkable. Like, And so I'll kind of go through this here. Um, but I should mention, I did not want to um, slander the CIA by suggesting that they killed a Black Panther when actually it was the FBI that did that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so essentially, <clears throat> the story here, and this is from the book, you know, uh, Larry Ellison, God and Larry Ellison by Mike Wilson, um, Essentially, the story is that the CIA is very interested in this relational database technology. They go to IBM and IBM demonstrates it, but says, "Hey, we don't have a product ready to market yet. You know, come back." because and again,
3: I, at IBM, we take a strong stance against uh, letting our products be used by imperial <laughs> governments for um, uh, less than humanitarian means.
0: The CIA went to IBM's relational database and was like, "Yeah, see, we can use F to look up Anne Frank." <laughs> and
3: IBM's like, "Shit, I thought we took that out."
0: <laughs> the CIA guy puts pushes the button T on the uh, on the IBM terminal, and then Treblinka comes up, and they're like, "This demonstration is over." <laughs>
3: IBM's just waiting for the Nazis to come back and they just like keep all the documents just at the ready
0: But so um IBM doesn't want to deliver the CIA the product because it doesn't work The guy who's in charge of procurement for the CIA at this time is a guy named Dave Roberts And he actually knew Bob Miner from that aforementioned terabyte memory project because Bob Miner had worked on that so uh, there, the CIA procurement guy is like, I can't get this from IBM right now. is anybody else have one? So he looks around and he finds this company that was started by Larry Ellison. He calls them up. Bob Miner answers the phone. So it's like, of course, I know this guy. I'll buy a relational database from him. I just want to say, like, <clears throat>
3: uh, I've been having some troubles at work, and we just, you know, started a company here. Mm-hmm. Have we considered uh, lying to the CIA for money? <laughs> I do
0: want to, like... What would our contract with the CIA be? It doesn't matter. (laughs) We're not going to deliver on it anyway. We spread uh, leftist uh, disinformation. (laughs) The CIA is like, yeah, if you guys could just take... What would our
1: other contract be?
0: (laughs) (laughs) The CIA is like, yeah, if you guys could just, like, spend 10 minutes an episode promoting modern art that uh, presents a sense of futility in uh, all radical movements and... uh, (laughs) Makes people think the system is impossible to change, so, so they should just check out of it. Yeah, the guys are only officially getting $10 a month on Patreon, but they seem to be buying Ferraris, and I don't really know what's going on with that podcast.
3: One of them just sold a print of his ass at Sotheby's for $60 million. It's not even a good print.
0: It's
3: just a photocopy.
2: <laughs>
0: But so, uh, according to the CIA guy, uh, Dave Roberts, uh, uh, this, the company at the time was called Relational Software Incorporated, later changed its name to Oracle. Oh, I forgot to mention the Terabyte Software Project mm-hmm. was, was codenamed Oracle, so Larry Ellison just took that and then named his company after it, Oracle. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, it was called... As Rel- was foretold. Yeah. <laughs> A uh, naked Greek virgin on drugs told him <laughs> to do that. Seen at Burning Man. Yeah, um, but so the CIA, according to uh, Dave Roberts, the CIA became the CIA <laughs> became customer number one for Oracle. Um, and just like random story, when the agency made payments on the contract, it sent the checks in plain white envelopes with no return address.
1: Damn, just like our benefactor,
0: right? Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, you know, Larry Ellison even tells the co-founder, I have to lie to customers to be successful. So, like, he pretends they have more employees than they do. They tell people that they're selling version two because they assume nobody would buy version one. There was never <laughs> any version one of this software. Um, and so, uh, after they sell it to the uh, the CIA, Larry Ellison sells it to Navy Intelligence. And um, uh, just, again, from this God and Larry Ellison book, uh it took the company a couple years to deliver something to the CIA, but it would, what it delivered was, quote, was really not usable as a database, uh, Dave Roberts from the CIA said. And the Navy intelligence people quickly realized that they were debugging the product for RSI and paying for the privilege of doing so. Uh, and then it quotes one Navy intelligence guy. We were teasing them about being their testing and evaluation arm. We would load it onto the computer in the morning and then call up Ed Gates at the company in the afternoon and tell him what our problems were. The guys at RSI would fix it in the evening and then they'd get down in the the flight the next morning. We almost did this on a daily basis. <laughs> so basically they ship an extremely buggy product that's clearly not functional to the United States government. The clearly
3: not up to the standards of... Uh, the uh, American Navy, uh, where everything has to work when they're in a combat situation in the Gulf of Tonkin.
0: <laughs> it is just an interesting thing where it's like, I don't know, Forbes gives this guy a 9 out of 10 self made score, and it's like he made his money because of the United States government and uh, its need during the Cold War for database technologies so that the CIA could start their secret wars and all that nonsense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you, Andy. You're welcome, Sean. Uh, and so it was, um, it, it's just interesting where, again, as I mentioned, IBM doesn't enter this market until 1982 and they ship a functional product. product but because the government is already using their buggy piece of shit and they have, in addition to like, getting money from the government, the government is acting as their fucking quality assurance arm, where the Navy guys are loading up their product and telling them what's <laughs> wrong with it, and then they're fixing it. You know, generally, companies hire somebody to do that, but because market share is so important, and because, you know, uh, it's it's very difficult for a business to switch off of a database technology, it's kind of the same thing with Windows operating system, where it wasn't the best, it just dominated the market so much, and they were out in front, so they're the ones who, you know, reap the rewards. Um, Sean's a Linux guy. <laughs> But um, and I guess just like uh, uh, one other thing from this uh, period is uh, won't shut up about it. We've mentioned most Silicon Valley companies have this. Um, I think the term is capitalist exploitation model. <laughs> Um, So from the the God and Larry Ellison book uh, In ways big and small Larry Ellison tried to get the most from his employees Every time uh, the company hired a new person uh, They had to buy two new computer terminals One for the office And one for the new employee's home The home terminals were connected to an RSI computer By a phone connection RSI's the company at the time. Ellison referred to the home machines as a, quote, company benefit. What he should have said was that they were a benefit to the company. Putting a computer terminal in employees' homes ensured that they were never really left the office. Everybody worked all the time, said uh, the company's first accountant. I'm glad as a society we've moved on from that
3: (laughs) dystopic (laughs) uh, labor situation where, you know everyone just takes their work home with them and can never leave the office. Yeah, you have a terminal too. <laughs> what? No. You have
1: a terminal at your, in your room.
0: Yeah, yeah, I do. Well, you got to I
3: escaped that
1: fate.
0: You got to you got to work hard from that terminal, Andy, so that uh your boss will have money to not pay sex workers with. <laughs> Um, That's
2: crazy that he has 60-plus billion dollars. He's like, I'm not going to give you the two grand or whatever the amount of money a a sex worker demanded of him.
0: I mean, people speculate he gets off on it, and it's... I mean, look, I don't know why somebody would do that. What if
2: that's the only reason he gets (laughs) sex workers? He just gets off on screwing them over on the pay. He doesn't even like the sexual part of it.
0: Well, the other thing is he does this to his employees, too. I mean, we'll go through a couple different... He doesn't pay them as well? Well, he... Essentially, After fucking them? he gets rid of them right before their stock options vest, right. even if they're people yeah, who have made yeah. him hundreds of millions of dollars just to be a petty asshole. And he doesn't eat their ass.
2: <laughs> <laughs> a lot uh, of ass talk on Twitter, fellas. and I've forgotten how much I've talked about eating ass on this podcast. <laughs> uh, so keep fe- them coming. Fellas, he violated,
1: violated the, the uh, ass-eating clause. That's ladies? right. In their fellas? employment contract. Fellas,
2: ladies get you a boss that'll eat your ass <laughs> you won't deal with four divorces Commit- if you start eating that ass i like committed it. to one hour per week but i <laughs> <laughs> haven't seen anything
0: i liked when andy was doing the jay leno setup on that one fellas you seen this you seen this boss who doesn't eat your ass <laughs> Kev, <Think laughs> you, you seen this, this. <laughs> <laughs> no nah, jay i eat all the books <laughs> <laughs> um but so and interestingly enough his co-founder bob miner i mentioned him But Bob Miner actually didn't like that they were working their employees to death. And so just a quote from Larry Ellison, Bob didn't like to see people work too hard because he thought the company was taking advantage of them, Larry Ellison said, with no self-awareness whatsoever. (laughs) Um, But it is interesting. Bob Miner is the other co-founder, but he dies of cancer in 1994. So he was kind of like a maybe a balancing influence on Larry, and since that time he's just been free to be a huge asshole. Um, And uh, seems to be a trend uh, amongst people who
3: associate with Larry.
0: And like one other story from that time, mother Steve Jobs, essentially (laughs) the company um, they all
3: love fruit juice. (laughs)
0: the uh the company goes public they have their ipo in 1986 and bob miner is the guy who actually makes sure that all the employees have some stock like if it wasn't for bob miner larry ellison would have screwed a bunch of employees out of stock options wow okay. yeah
2: bob miner major roberts the only reason why larry ellison doesn't have more money probably
0: <laughs> yeah basically <laughs> There are so many sex workers who uh, didn't get the opportunity to not get paid because of Bob Miner. But I guess just like to to go through, um, I guess up to the... When was the Challenger disaster? Uh, 86? So... I'm not saying Larry Ellison has anything to do with this, (laughs) because he doesn't. But in 1985... uh, He did call up NASA and say, I don't give a shit about the (laughs) 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 O-rings.
3: Put that teacher in space. (laughs) It was,
0: yeah, January 20th, 1986. Oh, you look
2: up dates, but not inflation numbers,
0: Stephen? Where will this strike end? Um, But so, basically, uh, in 1985, NASA starts calling them up and saying that their database software is totally buggy and unusable. (laughs) Um, And so, they have to make a bunch of corrections. But essentially, they're, especially in the early 80s, I think eventually they sell it to Ford, but they are primarily selling to government agencies. Apparently,
3: the line of data that says uh, O-rings lose their ability to uh, hold in gases when it's below freezing
0: outside. Just disappeared. <laughs> Larry Ellison had to make sure that happened because he knew those teachers' stock options were about to vest.
2: <laughs> it was mislabeled in the yeah. server admit they thought it was an Irish last name.
0: Yeah. Um, But so in Bob Miner's opinion, Oracle didn't really release a working product until version 4 came out about five and a half years after the founding of the company. But others say the the first one that actually worked was version 5, introduced in 1986. So it is just like a weird thing where it's like, I don't know if you want to call it a good business strategy to just dump a what do you want to call it, buggy, fraudulent product onto the market and then get enough people to use it and have it be too difficult for them to switch so they just have to wait for you to patch the thing. Sean, are you saying it's
2: wrong to release trash and then (laughs) later release something that
0: works for money? I don't know anything about releasing a uh, weak product (laughs) before someone else can put out a billionaire's podcast (laughs) that's better researched and uh, actually coherent.
2: We're only doing this episode because Larry Ellison's about to start a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys see Zuckerberg starting a podcast? Oh. Ugh. I don't like... That sounds listenable. Oh, my God. <sighs> Hi, this is Mark Zuck, the MZ of the PD. That's short for podcast. Like and poke the podcast. I'm oh. here to teach you about business.
0: Watch it become the number one podcast because if you don't listen, Zuckerberg will read your social security <laughs> number on air. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read the entire metadata of everyone who is not a Patreon subscriber. <laughs> um, so basically, oh, one other random thing is. Uh, Pow. I just shit my pants.
2: Some barbecue- At
3: justcoffee.coop. Barbecue and some brisket.
0: So, we mentioned Larry Ellison is a compulsive liar. According to Gawker, Ellison is said to have simultaneously juggled romantic entanglements entanglements with three of his employees at the same time. Um, and it is... How at the same time? <laughs> During sex. He had three different conference call phone sexes in a row. Hi, hi. I really
2: need to have phone sex, but we got a couple people on the line, so let's just get it done quick. He had them all on
0: hold and went back and yeah. forth. <laughs> yeah, take it off. Okay, hold.
3: <laughs>
0: I got a call on line two. It's just the sitcom. All right, two, so. two dates at one
2: trope, but via conference calls. I mean,
3: if you've if you've never come to uh, Kenny G, uh, hold music. <laughs> he, you are missing out.
0: He accidentally goes uh, to Bill Gates on line four right when he's ejaculating. <laughs> <laughs> um. But so I Not mentioned this again. <laughs> I mentioned this because as of 1980, so they're founded in 1977, 1980 they have about 12 employees. The 10th employee, I believe she's hired either 79 or 1980, is a woman named Barbara Booth. She's hired as a receptionist and uh, she would become the me- the mother of Larry Ellison's two children. So um uh Larry Ellison This is his second wife. This is his third wife. His okay. first wife leaves him after seven years. His second wife leaves him after, I think, a year and a half. Um, then his third wife is a receptionist that they hire for the company. And in January 1983, she has their uh, son, David. Um, and his first wife, he actually remained friends with. And his first wife warned his third wife about his uh, proclivity for constantly cheating. Um. Oh, yeah. Don't let the wives talk. <laughs>
3: It's like no, nev- rule number one: never let the first wife talk to the third wife.
0: You know they say billionaires are so much smarter than us, but they don't know these kinds of basic things. <laughs> if 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 the fourth
3: wife asks where the first three wives are, you say they're all in Canada.
0: Um, but so January 1983, he has his son David, and uh, one other story from this time: uh, the author Mike Wilson actually got his third wife to talk uh, for this book, and she says. With a gun to her head. (laughs) Uh, She says, quote, he once turned to me. I was like five or six months pregnant and said, if my company doesn't work out, don't expect me to stick around. She knew what he meant. If the company collapsed, he was not going to wallow in the failure. He was going to leave and start over again someplace else. I mean, just get out of here. Clear out and clearing out meant leaving everything, (laughs) including me. He's going to your,
1: be like hitchhiking <laughs> on the road of a bag. It's going to be like the uh, Hulk. Yeah. He has it's, it's a double bag. <laughs> yeah, right. Well.
0: To your five or six month pregnant wife telling don't, her that you will be gone if your buggy software craps out.
3: Don't make me angry. I'll screw you out of your stock options <laughs> if I'm angry. Or if I'm not angry. Her, her first husband didn't warn, didn't warn her.
0: <laughs> I like the idea of him promising to get The kids vaccines and then getting a CIA contractor to do it <laughs> We outsource debugging For our children too <laughs> um, And then one other story from this a Decem- So she's Gives birth January 1983. They get married. This his third wife, December 1983. Um, A few uh, from the same book by Mike Wilson. A few hours before the wedding, uh, Ellison handed her a typewritten prenuptial agreement and told her she had to sign it. Uh, She had mentioned it several weeks before, but hadn't brought it up since. Uh, Booth had to sign now or leave her child without a father. And, uh, you know, it's interesting where it's like this 1983 at this point, he actually puts his assets worth, you know, several million, I think like 11 million is what his estimate of his stock assets are at this point, because he has a lot of good government contracts. Um, but the the follow-up is that his wife needed a lawyer. At 11 a.m. she got one. Her father, who had arrived early to help with the wedding preparations, uh, starts acting as her lawyer uh, for this prenuptial agreement. And then Larry Ellison gets other guests at the wedding to start acting as his lawyer <laughs> for this prenuptial agreement negotiation taking place just a few hours before the actual wedding. You so, know, I, know I mean,
3: that- weddings are so expensive. You've got to cut corners to save money, right?
2: I know I shouldn't be shocked, but a billionaire's wedding is probably the best place to find a lawyer on a short notice.
0: <laughs> but so, you know, I mean, this is all just to explain to you that, again, Larry Ellison is a cold-blooded sociopath. Like uh, anyone who's ever been adopted <laughs> is incapable of uh, incorporating now, wow, themselves. Wow, into wow shot. <laughs> <laughs> but to... Uh, Bring us back to the subject here. 83 to about 1990. Essentially, they're growing pretty well. They hire a very aggressive sales force. And, you know, we've hopefully beaten this point to death. They have a shitty garbage product that's not even workable until 1986. But because they're, you know, first to market, they're able to grow their uh, business share very aggressively because everybody does need a relational database. It is... Oh, tell me about it. (laughs) It is... uh, (laughs) Uh, much more useful than having to scroll from the top down in in any sort of business environment or government environment. Um, Though it is interesting, this book mentions, even though the software was buggy as shit, essentially uh, uh, lots of government agencies got it working well enough to perform some Cold War applications. Uh, They they quote an employee saying, Oracle was tracking everything, everything. Uh, If there was anything up above, on the water, or underneath, Oracle was tracking it. So... um, A uh, nice history that Oracle continues to build on today. All the data Oracle could handle. (laughs)
3: Like, item five, up above. (laughs) Item six, (laughs) underneath. There's a table called above, Mm -hmm. and another table called below. Mm
1: -hmm. And another one called right in front of you. (laughs) Um,
0: But so Oracle, from this time, uh, from about 83 to uh, 1990, they start Larry Ellison gets obsessed with 100% annual growth rate because they are growing very fast, and he wants to deliver that every year. So he hires a very aggressive sales force, which would essentially go out to companies and promise them quite, almost literally anything to get them to sign, including like uh perpetual updates perpetual tech support and then as soon as they sign on the dotted line it's just impossible to get in contact with oracle so they get this reputation for being like extremely shitty to their customers but everybody wants this technology so the Salesforce figures correctly that it doesn't matter if you piss off a customer you just make the sale and then there'll be someone else who wants to buy your shit you know and so essentially uh Throughout the '80s, they uh, do a little bit of accounting fraud, where um, Larry Ellison has like a disdain for uh, a CFO, like he d- he views them as bean counters. So Larry Ellison wanted a C... That's what differentiates him from uh, Howard Schultz. But <laughs> <laughs> Schultz.
3: <laughs> He also thinks they're bean counters, but he knows it's essential.
0: So essentially, during this time, the the company's chief financial officer was a guy named Jeff Walker, who was really a developer of the company's financial applications. Um, But Ellison, uh, yeah, he referred to uh, CFOs and accountants as bean counters. And uh, they quote an employee as saying, Larry wanted a CFO he could control instead of one who should be a second opinion. So essentially, they get into all these uh, shady... Um, accounting practices where like uh, just as one example in the 1980s there was a six million license deal for applications where only a minimal amount of code had been written uh, they started uh, doing this thing where they would sign contracts right before the end of a quarter You know, especially after 1986 in the IPO mm-hmm. and they want to like report these strong numbers they would sign contracts right at the end of the quarter and then spend even up to years continuing to negotiate them because of some accounting principle that says you can count this revenue as long as there's only minor modifications to be made to this contract and um <clears throat> and you know they had like all this uh money that you know was essentially uh receivables like money that was owed to them that they counted as revenue even though it hadn't been collected and tons of it would never actually be collected right, right. so essentially their their sales force um started engaging in accounting fraud and very shady practices um, and making all sorts of wild promises to get customers. And they even like, like right before the bottom fell out of this, they launched a uh, promotion to pay their sales force bonuses in gold coins. And they had like, a guy dressed as, like, one of the uh, 49er gold miners come to the office and uh, speak in an old-timey accent and, like, you know, shower the uh, top-performing salespeople money with, pit. with gold coins. And I do like that they uh, took the grubstakers metaphor quite literally. <laughs>
2: I also read that that guy didn't get paid either.
0: But so, essentially, they had like these, you know, because they had booked all this revenue that didn't exist. Sometimes it just doesn't pan out. (laughs) (laughs) They booked all this uh, revenue that didn't exist, so they had these cash flow problems, and... What happens is they overstated revenue, according to this God and Larry Ellison book, they overstated revenue by about $55 million uh, by billing too soon or incorrectly. Uh, The Securities and Exchange Commission investigated and Oracle had to pay a $100,000 fine and sign a consent decree in which it agreed to desist from such practices as double billing and booking premature or non-existent revenue. So, throughout the 80s into the 90, uh, 91, they're doing some, some light accounting fraud. So like
1: he owes an apology to the bean counters. <laughs> since they, like,
3: they constituted, like, a big part of their business, really mm. on. I've actually got audio from when he, um, a meeting he had with one of his CFOs.
2: <laughs> you don't like me, Bond. You don't like <laughs> my methods. You think I'm an accountant. A bean counter more interested in my numbers than your instincts. The thought had occurred to me. Good. Because I think you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur. <laughs> the Cold War, whose boyish charms, though wasted on me, obviously appealed to that young woman I sent out to evaluate you. Point taken. Not quite, W7.
0: Yeah, no, it was a pretty awkward exchange between him and his CFO. <laughs> I don't like you comparing Larry Ellison to a man who always makes sure His Majesty's government pays his sex workers. <laughs> 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 um. But so essentially the company almost falls apart in this period because, of course, they settle with the SEC. They have multiple shareholder lawsuits that they have to settle because they're, again, accounting fraud. They're misstating revenues. They are fucking with a, a publicly traded company that a lot of people invest Accurately in. Accurately reporting their yes. financial statements. exactly, And... Um, so essentially, the, law. the company almost falls apart Letting in this period.
3: Bureaucrac- bureaucracies get in the way of stopping the GoldenEye satellite and
0: destroying the world financial system. The company almost falls apart in this point. And it is just something where it's like, I don't know if it's kind of the Americana culture where you see like a multi-billion dollar company like Oracle and you say, oh, Larry Ellison is the guy who deserves all the credit for this. And but he does. But it's like this guy... If it wasn't for other people who he would later fire or otherwise disgrace, this company would have fallen apart because, again, he didn't want a CFO. So, of course, widespread accounting fraud takes place uh, and, you know, his sales force is widely despised for lying to customers. So the company almost collapses and uh, they... They need a uh, $80 million cash injection from Nippon Steel, a Japanese steel company. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to make uh, their bill payments because a lot of banks wouldn't extend them any more credit because, aforementioned accounting fraud. Um, so they have to get a new CEO Who's like an experienced guy named Ray Lane They have to get a new CFO And these the C- new CEO and CFO From 1992 to 2000 and It's es- like with these
3: people, the world is not enough
0: <laughs> They essentially from 1992 To 2000 put the company back On stable financial footing and make it Like an actual real company Where contracts get resolved uh, In six days instead of six weeks And, and you know all this other stuff um, They resolved to
3: die another day
0: <laughs> But like, you know, and you can look up any uh, I guess business book as to what Ray Lane the new CEO did and the new CFO again I'm Jeff Henley, but essentially they saved the company and I did Make just Make
3: sure that tomorrow never dies.
0: I did want to uh, just share with you uh, the new CEO Ray Lane had um I think McKinsey like a consulting firm come in and like evaluate what the sales hmm. force was doing wrong. And so McKinsey and he determined it was octopus. <laughs> <laughs> McK- well there's your problem <laughs> <laughs> McKinsey came in And uh, they spoke with like um, 10 or 15 clients Of Oracle And uh, the quote was Not a single one had a good thing to say about the company Among the kinder comments Were calling the company <laughs> Unprofessional Arrogant Difficult to work with Full of themselves And a den of thieves <laughs> <laughs> So it's like, you know, I no, mean... No, I don't
3: see anything wrong with uh, several of those. <laughs> That's like... You, but you have heard of us. <laughs> well... Like
1: we're, we weren't especially successful at accounting fraud, but, you know, we're putting our name out there. Under the
0: extremely <laughs> successful system of capitalism, uh, that is more important. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you have heard of us yeah, means I mean, we already won. <laughs> I
1: have to, I gotta go. Yeah. Um, Sean, I gotta go. All right,
0: Uh, so I guess uh, Steve's going to tap out here, but we'll just uh, finish up the story of Mr. Larry Ellison in a moment. All right, well, we're back. Um, Steve just left, and he did all the research on everything the company has done since the year 2000, so we really did a smart thing putting that at the end of the episode. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So essentially, the Larry Ellison story is going to go to the year 2000 and then get very confused.
3: I think I can. I got something that'll cover for that.
0: All right. Um, but so where we left you uh, before Steve Steve had to uh, check out to see the newest uh, Cape shit movie is um, uh, Larry Ellison. Uh, the, He's going to
3: Shutter Island too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the company uh, turns things around thanks to a new professional staff from you know ninety two to two thousand and uh, McKinsey. You know they, essentially they overhaul their sales compensation comp- compensation structures to prevent all this kind of short-term st- stuff um, and they you know get into standard accounting practices so they're not you know wildly fraudulent and then just kind of mixing that with their existing market share they're able to grow very successfully from about 92 to 2000 but Larry Ellison is kind of like um, I would describe him as uh, capitalist Joseph Stalin hmm. in that he uh, seems to have a problem with anyone at Oracle except for him taking credit And when he's decided that somebody is getting too much credit for the company, he will begin uh, undermining them to the board and he will like start taking partners or other management people aside and just talking to them about what an idiot this other guy is and how he's always fucking up and you know, this kind of stuff and that he he lays the groundwork for the purge, which is a firing that person before their stock options can (laughs) vest and then Photoshopping (laughs) them out of company photos. (laughs) Which he does, like, I mean, he sort of does that where he'll, like, r- erase their existence from the company website and history. <laughs> <laughs> and then he had the Soviet-era production sales statistics. Right before he fires them, they yell, Hail Ellison! Um, but so Ray Lane, we mentioned the CEO from, uh, I think, 92 to the year 2000. Uh, Larry Ellison, so he saves the company, or h- him and the new management team do, I should say. And... um. Larry Ellison pushes him out while he's on vacation. Uh, Larry Ellison calls him on vacation and says, you know, hey, I think we should go in a different direction and like a really roundabout way. And he does this two and a half weeks before the guy is about to vest 70 million dollars in stock. And, you know, this is the guy who like fucking saved your uh, screaming accounting (laughs) fraud company and you're putting him out to pasture. Um, And so there's a lot of different cases of him uh, essentially firing – there are various wrongful termination lawsuits, firing people without severance agreements, which you're not supposed to do, screwing employees out of money. Um, They talk about – there was a guy, Jeff Squire, who was uh, apparently the lead of – Overseas sales for Oracle, he says, he generated about 500 million in revenue for the company and got them through like the really lean times in the early 90s. And he he's quoted as saying, I believe this is from the um, "Everyone Else Must Fail" book. Uh, He says Larry has an absence of generosity uh, (laughs) because essentially. They tried to get him to sign a release agreement, saying that he had been terminated on October 28, making him in- ineligible for vesting two million worth of stock. Uh, but he was still working for the company and negotiating a deal in December of that year. So it's just extremely blatant. And again, he says that uh, he made about five hundred million in revenue for the company, and Larry Ellison is trying to screw him out of two million dollars. So he's a I, it does psychopath. sound though uh,
3: like if he got stuck with that that he wasn't that good at negotiating <laughs> he wasn't doing great negotiating if they stuck him with that
0: yeah and um among uh from this everyone else must fail book there was also a guy who lost a million dollars worth of stock it was an executive who left the co- left the company to become an episcopal priest oh well so you know going on to to do even more damage to society <laughs> By spreading the heretical gospel. Um, I mean, on the bright side, you know,
3: at least with an Episcopal priest, Larry Ellison can get divorced more.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But like... Essentially, and you can go through all this stuff of Larry Ellison pushing out uh, Tom Siebel. Essentially, he pushes out a lot of people who found companies that directly compete with Oracle. <laughs> so it's like, he does kind of fuck himself out of money, uh, out of just pure ego and being an asshole who needs to always take credit for things. But like Tom Siebel was the founder of Siebel System, which is a major uh, competitor to them. Uh, is from the Everyone Else Must Fail book. Mike uh, Fields was pushed out. He founded Open Vision. Uh, Greg Conway ran PeopleSoft, which uh, Larry Ellison would do a hostile have to do a hostile takeover of you know spend a bunch of money and fight off a Department of Justice antitrust lawsuit. Um, but essentially you know a lot of different people were pushed out uh, and many of them founded competing companies and many of them had like essentially saved or built a lot of Larry Ellison's company and he has no regard for for what they did to make him worth 66 billion dollars. But so from you know 92 to 2000 the you know a new management team takes over saves Larry Ellison's company uh 2000 he pushes them out uh or specifically the CEO later the CFO um but 2001 Larry Ellison is embroiled in um insider trading related to the dot com crash and so the basic story of this No one's ever
3: embroiled in something good.
0: <laughs> uh from the New York Times uh Larry Ellison is sued under a loss. He's sued under multiple losses to this, but um, one is that essentially, the story is essentially that he sold about nine hundred million dollars worth of stock ahead of news that Oracle would not meet its expected earnings target, and as soon as this is reported, Oracle's the stock value falls in half. Oh wow! So essentially, he saved you know what four hundred and fifty million dollars by. Uh, Lying, uh, doing this sale based on inside information and also publicly lying about how Oracle is about to report solid financials and everything's fine, you know, right before the stock price falls off a cliff. Um, And so this was in 2001. Uh, He, for some reason, is able to enter an agreement where he pays $100 million to a charity, which seems very odd that the penalty is less than the profit that he cleared on this insider trading sale. Um, And then just from Gawker, so this is like he settles one lawsuit this way. Then there's another shareholder lawsuit about this that is dismissed for insufficient evidence. And the reason there's insufficient evidence, because in Gawker in 2008, a local district judge ruled that Oracle conveniently failed to preserve Ellison's email from that period, as well as tapes and transcripts from the uh, Matthew Simons biography uh, where he interviewed Oracles, uh, where he interviewed Larry Ellison. According to the LA Times, uh, the shareholders wa- were seeking 130 hours, 135 hours of recorded interviews with Larry Ellison for the book "Software" uh, by Matthew Simons, and S- Simons destroyed the recordings by directing a computer repair shop to dispose of the laptop on which the recordings were stored. <laughs> Which, again, we mentioned up top, takes really the sycophantic billionaire biography to the next level. Um, but so if Also, ba- yes. a guy who's really bad at not leaving a paper trail. <laughs> Always do your own dirty work, bro. But according to this district judge, uh, she said it is appropriate to infer that the emails and software materials would demonstrate Ellison's knowledge of, among other things, problems with uh, the Sweet 11i technology, the effects of the economy on Oracle's business, and problems with uh, their forecasting model. So essentially, he destroyed a bunch of emails and other taped interviews, which would show clearly he knew what the fuck was going on when he sold that Oracle stock and... And then this shareholder lawsuit is dismissed for insider uh, for insufficient evidence. So, nice. Remember, kids, it's very important to be nice to your biographer. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I know you might get sixty-six billion. If you work for the CIA, your biographer might fuck you. I know you might get. Then she'll kiss you. I know you might get in the habit of screwing people out of money. Your biographer, really important to make sure he gets his check <laughs> because he might be embroiled in a lawsuit where he has to obstruct justice for you. Um, and so, you know, Ellison, it just kind of goes on like this. In 19- Well, that's
3: how you know he didn't have sex with his biographer. <laughs> he paid him.
0: Uh, in 91, um, Ellison's involved in a sexual harassment lawsuit. It's uh, just another employee that um, he has a relationship with. She has him on email, on company email, asking for, uh, offering her things like a loan for $150,000, promising her a house, a Gulfstream jet. Um, and she was fired in 93 after the relationship ended. He's not even giving her $150,000.
3: He's
0: offering her a loan. <laughs> <laughs> um, but weirdly enough, like, and so. I've got a sugar loan shark. He gets mad when journalists bring them up because essentially she faked some evidence and actually did a year in jail for perjury, um, which is kind of bizarre to me because it seems like a pretty clear case of sexual harassment. Like I'm sure he's had uh, several different cases considering he's carrying on all these relationships with his employees. Um, but uh, but I'm sure he also got punished for this. <laughs> <laughs> no, she won she won 100k in a wrongful termination suit, but then on appeal uh, she was sentenced to spend a year in jail because she had fake forged some evidence basically.
3: Now you're making and, it sound like these billionaires have a whole different justice system at their disposal. <laughs>
0: Uh, At least, this is from Vanity Fair, at Lee's perjury trial, Ellison insisted that he had never bought an Acura NSX. I'm embarrassed to say that I ended up buying four of them. (laughs) (laughs) Emphasis on un-Acura NSX. Um, And and so, essentially, uh, what's been happening since, you know, the 2000s, Larry Ellison was pushed out as CEO in 2014, and I would speculate it's because of his... uh, very brash management style, which involves you know firing anyone who's useful for the company because eventually they're a threat to his position and uh, credibility, um, as you know the guy who uh, deserve the genius behind everything, you know, but he was pushed out as CEO in 2014, and what I would argue has essentially happened since then is Oracle has such a dominant position in the database market that it's too expensive or too cost prohibitive for a lot of existing businesses to transition out of Oracle. So even if Oracle database software is, you know, not the best on the market, it's just too much of a pain in the ass for Amazon or whoever else to transition out. So essentially they're, well, not quite a monopoly. They're certainly... Functioning as one, at least in the United States. Since 2000, you know, they've just been on really an acquisition spree. Just any company that's a potential competitor to them, they buy out, including, you know, Sun Systems, which gives them, like, access to Java code. And I don't know enough about coding, but I know a lot of people online complain that Larry Ellison essentially bought Java and then ruined Java and, and right. you know, these kinds of things. Um, and, and it is just, like, uh, worth mentioning why the open source community hates him because of a nice little quote i found if an open-source product gets good enough, we'll simply take it. So the great thing about open-source is nobody owns it. A company like Oracle is free to take it for nothing, include it in all our products, and charge for support. And that's what we'll do. So it is not disruptive at all. You have to find places to add value. Once open-source gets good enough, competing with it would be insane. We don't have to fight open-source. We have to exploit open-source.
3: That's actually uh, covered in David Graeber's book, Bullshit Jobs. Mm-hmm where essentially what a lot of programmers end up doing is uh, a lot of open source uh, code that's written, it's basically created by programmers in their free time. uh, And it's kind of like a labor of love. You know, they're creating things that they want to create. And then at their day-to-day jobs, like a lot of these companies will just take open source software and then they'll hire programmers to patch it together. So basically programmers will make the actual stuff during their free time. And then their job is to kind of duct tape all these disparate open source programs together.
0: (sighs) But so, essentially, like, with the time we have left, unfortunately, we we can't really go through all the uh, acquisitions that Oracle has gone gone through, but maybe we'll do a follow-up episode at some point when Steve doesn't have to leave to see the Avengers movie. Um, But I wanted to mention... Oracle has been ripping off the federal government for contracts to the point where they're actually banned from federal government contracts. Wow. And this is from uh, Jeffrey Newman Law, his blog. Uh, Newman. <laughs> he said in 2012, in October, Oracle agreed to pay $200 million to settle a whistleblower lawsuit alleging that it overcharged the feds for software services and giving some agencies much deeper discounts than others. In October 2006, Oracle paid $98.5 million to settle cases in which PeopleSoft was alleged to have provided false pricing information to the uh, GSA, the uh, Government Services Agency, Government General Services Administration, is the government procurement agency. Um, and so, basically, in uh, October twenty in 2012, the federal government canceled all of Oracle's services contracts. Uh, the government spent uh, 388 million on Oracle projects and services through the contract fiscal year 2011. Um, <clears throat> And it basically announced that all purchase agreements for Oracle ser- services would be terminated. And this is important. As of right now, the Pentagon has got a $10 billion, what they're calling the JEDI contract, which is a $10 billion compute cloud computing contract for Pentagon servers. And as of April 2019, the finalists... That
3: will only destroy itself. <laughs> and allow for the takeover of the empire. <laughs>
0: The uh, cloud computing project that is going to uh, find the location of Alderaan and test nukes there. (laughs) Find the rebel base on Alderaan. (laughs) Uh, But so, $10 billion, Jedi contract, and uh, as of April 2019, Microsoft and Amazon have been announced as the finalists for this contract, but Oracle is desperately suing everyone they can in federal court. They have an ongoing lawsuit against the feds after having lost a previous one on these grounds, saying that the feds unfairly excluded them from this fat Pentagon contract, but it's like, listen, dipshits, it's your own goddamn fault because you were ripping off the feds every chance you get. You know, they were banned from government contracts because they were defrauding the feds. You know, I'm sorry you can't suck at that teat anymore. I mean, I don't think they don't know that. <laughs> I think it's,
3: they're like, yeah, we were ripping them off and we can keep doing that if we sue them hard enough.
0: Basically that. And so it is just something where it's like, you know, we'll... We'll see what happens with Oracle, but so Oracle, they use this money they made from uh, you know database software to move into enterprise, you know business software where they're a significant player. but a lot of people have pointed out that other companies other people have pointed out that other companies are making uh, inroads in enterprise software against them, such as Salesforce, Workday. These other companies, essentially like the established companies are still using Oracle, but a lot of startups are switching to Salesforce and Workday because they have a better product than Oracle. So, and, you know, as of March 2019, Oracle had to lay off a few hundred, maybe even a couple thousand engineers worldwide. So, Oracle's, like, going through some restructuring and, like, so far the stock price is doing fine. But, again, uh, my argument would be a lot of the growth or the market position of Oracle is just the fact that they've established a quasi-monopoly in the database area. Mm. Maybe they will, maybe they won't be challenged there, but at least on the enterprise software they have serious competition and we'll see what happens. But I guess to close things out today, uh, unfortunately we don't have Steve here to provide us with uh, actual business insight and analytics into the practices of Oracle Corporation. So you're just gonna have to settle with uh, some gossip from uh, various sex worker websites talking about Larry Ellison. Though I did want to mention both of his children are film producers. Both of his kids, David, and uh, his daughter, they opened... Uh, his daughter, Goliath. <laughs> his daughter's named Megan. Both of them are USC film school dropouts <laughs> who uh, opened uh, film production companies. It, it worked for Bill Gates. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I do just love that this is the fucking future of entertainment. Is like If you want to get your movie funded... Like, get ready to kiss up to the uh, people inheriting the CIA black ops money. <laughs> I mean, God God forbid Hollywood be dominated by uh,
3: out-of-touch rich people.
0: <laughs> but uh, I do like that uh, among the films Megan has funded includes Zero Dark Thirty. Sure, why not? Which... Uh, you know, everything comes full circle. The CIA puts you in business and then 20 years, 40 years later they show up and say, "Hey, we need you to pretend torture helped us catch Ben Laden." Yeah.
3: And that it wasn't just a guy who walked into one of our offices in Pakistan. Zero dark 30s how Larry Allison
2: likes his sex workers. Pay them zero, I want them dark and uh, around 30.
0: I think you added 12 years. <laughs> Um, but so both his kids are film producers. And so it is just something where, uh, this is, uh, pure gossip. Uh, so if you have a problem with it, take it up with thedirty.com. But essentially it should be noted that, um, uh, I guess the woke way of saying this is that sex workers rely on anonymous forums to protect themselves from abusive clients. So if you were to, uh, desire to do so, you could look up, that um, there is a gentleman who may or may not be Larry Ellison who has showed up on websites like Seeking Arrangements, Sugar Daddy Forum, uh, under profile ideas such as Malibu Flyboy, number 519209, uh, Flyboy, number 519209, or Lawrence 2030653. And according to uh, various reports from uh, these These websites, uh, this is from thedirty.com, he tells every girl that she's the only one, that he wants to love her, marry her, and of course give her kids. Uh, He lies about having STD tests, he doesn't use condoms, he uh, has a vasectomy, but he lies that he wants to get girls pregnant and have babies with them. And uh, then he regularly rips them off on the payment. And I guess I just wanted to share one story of uh, one sex worker talking about Larry Ellison. Uh, Malibu Flyboy is a well-known billionaire. He said he was going to make my first meeting worth my while as it was going to, I should say, she's talking about Malibu Flyboy, yes, not, of not Larry right. Ellison. Right. Uh, <laughs> I don't really want to fuck with the guy who's suing Google and has people going through Bill Gates trash. <laughs> I'm not confident about my ability to prevail in that lawsuit. <laughs> Malibu Flyboy is a well-known billionaire. He said he was going to make my first meeting worth my while, as it was going to take me several hours to be driven, and I was flown on his private jet big deal spent hours traveling we had a nice lunch he bragged about all his money then said he wanted an arrangement at our next meeting he would give me my allowance and we would go shopping so I left with nothing first time thinking it would be worth my worth it on my next visit I didn't think he would never pay he invited me out the following week to a big public function I entertained him for eight hours during the day along with meeting his friends and making him look good during the time he told me about the car he was going to buy me and all the great shopping we were going to do be doing uh, basically, I wound up fooling around with him later that night. Uh, I'd never skipping ahead. I never would have left the premises if I really thought he was trying. He was lying to me and trying to get me out with some form of comp- compensation. Like the next morning he says, oh, it's uh, got an emergency meeting, you gotta go, blah, blah, blah. Uh, what is basically comes down to, so I flew back thinking we had a solid agreement and he continued to text me, et cetera. What it basically comes down to is he is a major liar and never paid me, at least even for my time. He led me on for a week saying he was busy with work, etc. he missed me, he would make it up to me. Little did I know he was conning me along. I'm a very pretty model and I have a great personality. This is a billionaire who could easily afford everything. I basically went off on him through text, email, voicemail, etc., and got nothing. There has to be other girls who have met him and been conned as well. I need help spreading the word so other girls don't get taken advantage of. So Larry Ellison
2: does not pay his workers. I mean, I don't mind her calling herself pretty, but great personality. Come on, let's... If her personality is truly great, maybe she'd be
3: Larry Ellison's wife number five. I hope that when we get sued that in the court documents, we're... It's very clearly stated that we're being sued for calling him a fuckboy.
0: <laughs> uh, you know what? I will give anyone who can uh, listen to Larry Ellison talk about how Napoleon Bonaparte was a great misunderstood man for eight hours. I will give them credit for having a good personality. <laughs> 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 to, to take that man and make him look good with his friends in public eh, takes a lot. Mm, noisy feet. And, you know, if you are so interested, you can go to thedirty.com and uh, hear some other reports about Larry Ellison that fall into the same category, being, uh, you know, possibly abusive towards sex workers and rough in the bedroom and these kinds of things without obtaining, you know, uh, what do you want to call it? Enthusiastic consent.
3: Oh, Uh, does he... Are there also reports of that? There's a
0: report where an 18-year-old girl writes about uh, how um, he... Took her to bed and said Malibu was, something, something takes someone yes, to bed. Yes, yes. This anonymous billionaire yeah. takes people to bed and uh, says, Oh, I'm very vanilla and plain, and then is uh, very rough and slappy and abusive with words and engages in anal sex without prior discussion and, and these kinds of things. Um, so, I mean, it is kind of fucked up. And again, look, these are anonymous reports. Anybody can write anything on the internet. But uh, it's fucked up on the one hand that you're a billionaire who doesn't pay your employees, whether they work at your company or otherwise, or people you have a contractual arrangement with, I should say. And it's also fucked up where it's like, you know, you're fucking with the minds of people who either don't have the resources or in the case of sex workers, they have no legal protection. So you can just steal money from them and be a billionaire and it doesn't matter and there's nothing they can do within the court system or anything. And so, you know, he's just a psychopathic piece of shit who's worth $66 billion and always talks about what a a great philanthropist he is. Well, every day he wakes up and, you know, doesn't end homelessness and doesn't really do anything with all this goddamn money he's sitting on.
3: Well, Sean... You're saying that, but would sex workers be able to spread the word about abusive clients
0: without SQL databases? I was going to say his uh, his defense, if there was a court case, would be like, yeah, no, I entered the sex worker payment contracts into the Oracle database and it just disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> Look, my shit's a roach motel for data. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, but I guess, you know, maybe we'll do a follow-up. The kids, I'm sure, have a lot of great movies, ideas to produce that we will not be a part of <laughs> because of this episode. Uh, and hopefully we can... I mean, until he screws them out of their inheritance. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he comes out of retirement for one last job, <laughs> screwing his kids out of their stock <laughs> options.
2: They make a movie about it. It
0: gets several Oscars. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we're, we're taking... Uh, So I wanted to close this out by just saying we're taking next weekend off, you know, give ourselves a little bit of time to recharge and hopefully come back enthusiastic because we are, as we mentioned, launching our Patreon. So no episode next weekend, uh, May 5th through 7th, but look for two episodes, uh, May 12th through 14th, probably May 14th, uh, one behind a paywall. And um, we
3: just in, we just need to be able to bring, I'd say, about ten percent more energy than we brought in this episode. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if only we had a way of doing so. <laughs> uh, well, maybe we can get uh, <laughs> uh But so, I guess uh, one last pitch on that. Uh, first off, you know, I think we're launching the Patreon. Like, look, obviously, every one of us would love to be fucking SoundCloud millionaires, making our living off the podcast. Um, and if it happens, great. but I think my primarily primary motivation is to get this project done. We do have to start putting out two billionaire episodes a week and uh, hopefully you know even if not that many people listen, uh, we can start doing that and just have them in the can so that the the project of covering 2,000 some billionaires within a lifetime is feasible uh, once we get on this twice a week episode schedule. Um, but I guess there's that. The second part is, uh, If you are having financial problems, but you are a listener and want to listen, just email us, grubstakerspodcast at gmail.com. I'm not trying to take your only $5 if you're, you know, taking care of your family or anything else is going on in your life. And we do appreciate that there's people who like to listen to us. And uh, we very much appreciate the people who've hit us up and said, hey, they want to support us and support what we're doing. And my last pitch for giving us $5 a month is that the podcasts that are actually better than ours, which to me would be like Chapo Trap House, Come Town, uh, Red Scare, When Dosh Is Not Too Stoned to Function, those three podcasts that are better than us, uh, those podcasts, you can get the episodes for free on Reddit. So the podcasts that are actually better than us, you could actually just start stealing them and then giving us the money instead. And in fact, I will go so far as to say that we will put pirated links to the podcasts that are better than us behind the paywall. So that if you listen to us, we will teach you how to steal podcasts that are better than us.
3: I also would like to make a pitch too, which is that if um, we don't make enough money to uh, basically be able to quit our day jobs and do this full time, Mm -hmm. I will kill myself. (laughs) (laughs) I have, I'm on a fifth floor apartment. Uh, my bedroom has two windows. I've got an extension cord. I am an Eagle Scout. I know how to tie knots. Uh, it's really, uh, the plans in place. It's just a matter of execution. So literally, literally just a matter of execution. So, you know, um, if you don't want me to basically jump from the fire escape with a, uh, orange extension cord wrapped around my neck tightly, um, falling about, a f- story and a half And snapping my neck Or suffocating From the extension cord uh, While Stephen Panics and calls the police And uh, my cat Runs in circles Not knowing what just happened uh, You know Just uh, Throw a couple bucks On the Patreon um, And I think we'll put
0: out A good product I think so Andy Andy don't give them Incentive not to give money To our Patreon <laughs>
3: And everyone else Will be kind of Sad
0: how about uh if uh our patreon doesn't get money andy will do it in private but if it does get money he'll do it in public
2: on twitch
3: <laughs> oh that's hack yeah i guess so when did killing yourself on twitch become hack it's just hack you want to you want to <laughs> do it in private to maintain the uh everything the air about, of mystery everything about suicide's is a little hack i'm imagining someone like hanging themselves on twitch and then someone, like, pays money and you just, like, forever in the video of it that's archived. That, like, just as they, like, kick the stool out from under their feet, you hear, hooray!
0: <laughs> somebody somebody hanging themselves. Leroy Jenkins! <laughs> somebody is tying the noose around themselves on Twitch. And then they take a break to be like, hey, Christkiller69, thanks for the $10 donation. Right, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: That's <laughs> like their last words.
0: Hey Yellow Jacket 42, 7 months subscribe. <laughs> Thanks buddy. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, let's get some faves going in the kick. Okay. <laughs> uh, but in summary, uh, thank you for listening. You know what, I take that back. I'm going to
3: I got enough XLR cables that I can do it with those and that's way more symbolic. <laughs> that is true yeah. and they if you connected it to each other it would have probably
2: a better hold than the p- extension than cords extension think, cord. yeah. yeah most likely mm-hmm.
0: In, uh, instead of doing it live Andy pre-records it just as one last time making it a bitch for the rest of us to edit <laughs>
2: <laughs> and he uh, doesn't do drops on it either. <laughs> the only drops at the end and it wasn't worth it
0: <laughs> yeah Andy had to to retake the suicide four times <laughs> Because he kept playing an Elvis Costello song, uh, and we didn't know what the Elvis uh, Costello song the was. The stream gets
2: shut down for copyright too many times. <laughs> Sorry, you cannot kill uh, yourself. Yeah. Is this Layla by Elvis Costello?
0: Nobody nobody sees the video, because uh, he kills himself at 20 minutes, but at 10 minutes it gets <laughs> taken down for copyright <laughs> infringement.
3: Uh, and that's why you don't play Adam's song for your televised suicide. <laughs>
0: No, it's a parody. Andy's estate is arguing in court that it's a parody. (laughs) It's atom song, A T O M S.
2: It was about the nuclear bomb. Uh, All right. I never thought they dropped the bomb. My death was short, but the cord was long. I couldn't wait for the stream. Twitch, don't ban me. Now I'm gone. (laughs) Wrong song. Even in this, he fucks up. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you all uh, for everyone who said some kind words, supportive about the Patreon. Again, email us grubstakerspodcast at gmail.com. Let us know your feedback, thoughts, ideas, and just general comments. Um, we very much appreciate all of you listening, and uh, we'll be back in two weeks with two episodes, one of them uh, on the Patreon. So uh, thank you very much, and uh, good night. Good morning. <laughs>
3: Mary my angel.